0: Okay, 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy with me if you would, and uh, we are going through pastoral epistles. They are a benefit to the church. Uh, They do tell us um, what we should expect. Uh, You know, we are an impatient folks, and uh, it's always been that way. When Adam and Eve sinned, and the promise of the Messiah was given, that he would crush the head of Satan and Satan bruises his heel. Uh, when that promise was given and then Eve gave birth to a child, she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And it's very emphatic in the Hebrew and most commentators believe that she thought I have gotten the man, the Redeemer. Because in her mind, this, this was the promise, and she didn't. She realized that they had sinned, and they had. She wanted the redemption, and so she thought that first son of hers was the Messiah. The way she acted and the way she said it, she really thought, and it really uh, cast a light on the the, the the countless generations of mankind. Because don't we always think somebody's going to come along and redeem us? There's going to be some leader somewhere that's going to make it all right. You know, I have gotten a man, and we think that man's going to redeem us, and nobody's going to redeem us uh, except the Savior. So my point is this. We want, we want something fast. So when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, for the first few years with thousands getting saved and the spread of the gospel, they really believed that they were living in the very times of the return of Christ. Okay? Okay? Because, again, like Eve, they thought, well, let's just, let's just get this thing over. They never saw the 2,000-year gap that it took for the church as God built his church over these thousands. They never saw it. They thought he was coming. So the early writings of all the apostles, the early writings in the, in the New Testament, really had the feel and, and sense of he's coming soon. Uh, one of, uh, I think, Peter or Paul's, one of his advice about the present distress. It's better within the present distress to remain unmarried. And his thought was the present distress of all the persecution from Rome, he's coming again any moment they expected to see him. Well, after a few years, he, he didn't come. And the church had to settle down and, and, and realize, okay, we may be here for a while. This thing may not wrap up in our, our lifetime and then in the later writings of all the apostles and writers you find let's slow down now you find Paul and Peter let's Paul giving marriage advice he didn't give them it in, in Galatians because that was an early letter you see but now we're settled down now we're going to be here for a while so you have first and second Timothy and Titus pastoral letters to say this the church is going to be here So let's learn how to behave in the church. Let's learn what the church should look like. Let's establish leaders in the church. Let's give it a sense of structure. Now, I'm an anti-structure guy. I got to be pushed towards structure. I'm more of a freelance kind of let this body breathe and grow. And the problem with that is when you don't have a lot of structure, sometimes things fall through the cracks and there's fallacy in that. I think there's fallacy in too much structure, running the church like a business. I share that, and I'm going to get to 1 Peter. I want to tell you the, the, the benefit of a letters like this, because it tells us what the church ought to look like. But I'm finishing up probably one of the easiest classes in college I've ever taken. There's no tests. There's no, I mean, there's discussion boards. There's hardly anything. There's a 15-page paper at the end of the course about church leadership. And it is, it is like pulling teeth to get me to fill up 15 pages of structure because I'm an anti-structure guy. And so I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And so I'm, I'm suggesting he wants dates and times. You're going to start this program in September. You're going to put this person in charge. So a lot of your names are showing up in the paper. You don't actually have to do anything. I just need your name in there. and it's just So if you ever see the report, Jim, you're over the... Anyway, that's... A, <laughs> so I said all that to say this. Uh, Paul and Timothy, Paul in First and Second is giving us some structure for the church because the church does need a sense of structure. Even an animal has a skeleton and bone system, so you just you need some kind of structure. You just have to. There's just you know, you just okay. First Peter, beat that thing to death. First Peter, just want to make sure you're with me tonight. Thank you. First Timothy. First Timothy. No, it's 1 Timothy. I know where we're at. I'm absent. So don't test me now. Verse chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Yes, I have enough structure to know where we're at tonight, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a qualifications of the pastor or overseer. Uh, and it says, the saying is trustworthy. Now, this was obviously a saying of the time. It's trustworthy. Paul's putting a stamp of approval on this saying of the time. If anyone aspires, if anyone wants, if anyone desires, to the office of an overseer, the ESV translates it. It's really the Greek word episkopos. Uh, It's translated bishop, the bishop. Uh, It it can be translated pastor, overseer, uh, episkopos, bishop. It's all the same thing thing, okay? So if anybody desires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a job, it is a task, but it is a noble task. Therefore, because it is a noble task, it is required within that man to have certain qualifications of a moral fiber Notice, therefore, an overseer must, not that he can, not that he can develop it over time, he must, at the point of taking the office, have these qualifications. He must be above reproach. Now, I'll probably say this a couple times in the study. None of this means the pastor has to be perfect in all ways. But it does mean that in the community at large, and within the church, that he doesn't need to have an ongoing black mark against him. A reproach, something that the lost world can put their finger on him and say, oh sure, that's the kind of guys they get to run the church. Something that the community can point out about him. Must be above reproach. Now in some of these qualifications, I'm going to give my opinion. My opinion is this, if a pastor falls to a grievous sin of a great moral issue, I don't think he qualifies to be a pastor anymore, okay? He's not, at that point, above reproach. He can be used in a number of different ways within the church. There is forgiveness, but in this particular setting, I really believe if you hold a platform where you preach, teach the Word of God in a public setting, that to have some great moral failure, okay? adultery fornication that sort of thing stealing of money from a church that he no longer is qualified to be in that position that's my opinion i think it supports itself from that verse saying above reproach there are those who differ but there it is verse two therefore got to be above reproach he needs to be the husband of one wife I take this to mean one wife at a time. This was a time of polygamy. This was a time of many wives. This was a time in the first century you could have concubines, you could have wives, you could have mistresses, you could have a variety of women. I do not believe this qualifies for, I don't believe that he's speaking about someone who has been divorced and remarried. I don't see that there. I, this, again, my opinion, I think it's the husband of one wife qualifying in the first century for a husband who is married to one woman at a time. Now, let's say a guy's a pastor and he's got his pastor's wife and it's a wreck of a marriage and they get divorced. Uh, that's That may qualify for a different kind of level. He might need to step down and maybe for a good long time. Because you'll see in just a minute, if a guy is a mess at home, he doesn't need to make a mess down here. So... I'm not saying you could run your pastor's wife off and grab somebody else, you know, the next week. It's not saying that. Uh, there are circumstances of divorce that are one-sided, almost all ones. You know, so there are some situations that people get divorced that for abuse sake, you know, it's just, you have to look at the circumstances also. But I really believe the reference here is the husband of one wife at a time, at a time. So uh, that's partly an opinion. Uh, the husband of one wife. Now, oh, we're just full of opinions tonight. Here, right here, goes another one. I don't believe a woman should be a pastor. I don't believe that's a position where women should be. If a woman can be the husband of one wife, she can be a pastor. I don't think she can. I think the scripture is very clear. Again, there are awfully good men who disagree with me. My good friend Mike Roddy disagrees with me. Doesn't mean women can't teach. Doesn't women women can't be used of the Lord and great more Beth Moore is used of the Lord and helping tremendous and she says when she gets up at that her, her things that I'm not subverting if there's men in this congregation and there are I'm not subverting authority over them This is teaching to women if you happen to be here you happen to be here so she handles it I think in a very biblical way so but as far as a woman preaching from a pulpit within a church setting I do not believe that a, that I think that's a man's position from these verses. Now there are those who say, well, that was the first century and we've evolved beyond that. Be careful with that with that idea because you can apply that to a lot of stuff in scripture. When you begin to relegate biblical teaching to the first century saying we've evolved beyond that first century, well Paul's view of women, be careful with that because you're you're There's no end to the end of that. You can can relegate a bunch of verses and just ignore it. And I think we make a great mistake when we do that. So, all right. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of wife, wife, sober-minded. Not a clown. Well, he needs to have a sense of humor or he'll lose his mind, but he needs to be serious-minded. He needs to be sober-minded. He needs to be serious. Listen, what we do when we minister. And this goes for teachers, for all of us. We are ministering to people's lives through the Word of God. You don't know on a Sunday morning coming in here who's hurting and who's broken and who's... I got a, I got a text email last night from a, a lady whose father used to go here, and they used to go here too, and they left the area and they're coming back and they're going to visit. And she says, my my father just went through a divorce with my stepmom. He's broken. He's a lost puppy. He's just, he's so sad. It's breaking my heart. She's going to bring her fiancé. You don't, when we, it's a serious thing when we minister the Word of God in a setting like this for God to work in people's lives. So we don't take it lightly. This is, this is business. This is the business of heaven on earth. Look, when we sit within a church setting and the Word of God is preached and we're involved, all of us, in the ministry right here. This is more vital than any political rally. This is more important than any town meeting you'll ever go to, okay? This is where eternal destinies are set. This is where people go to hell or go to heaven, right out of churches where we're preaching the word of God, where, where they can have their sins forgiven, where chains can be broken. It's, we're to be serious and sober-minded in the business that we're doing. It's serious. All right, notice it says self-controlled. As so many things that a clergy may want to say, he needs to keep his mouth shut. And, and I've, I've never regretted something I didn't say. I've regretted a lot that I did say. And we're human. We get in the flesh and we'll say something. And I, I, I've driven out of that driveway many a time thinking, boy, I wish I hadn't said that. So we need to restrain, self-control, and be careful what we say. Notice respectable. Respectable respectable. Carrying ourselves with a sense of dignity. Hospitable. Um, That's not just inviting someone over to your house. Really, I think it, which is always appropriate, which is always nice. I think it's more when someone sits down with clergy or anybody in an overseer position that they feel accepted, loved, listened to, like the guy really he's not looking over your shoulder for somebody else to talk to. Hospitable. And that's good for all of us, but it's especially important for clergy. Karen and I were members of a church years ago, and I know that the preacher was a good man, but I'm telling you, in the handshaking time, his goal was to shake every single hand, and he flew. When he got by you, good to see you, brother. Good to see you, brother. I mean, they're just moving, and that's you know, and, and I taught a training union class one time there, and he was sitting there, and I mentioned the importance of slowing down. And, you know, he listened, and I saw his eyes, and I saw a change in that man. He slowed down and shaking hands, and he improved at that. And um, I remember that it was, it was Dr. McMillan. Good man, but he felt like he had to keep moving. You shook his hand, and he was looking right over your shoulder to the next guy. But, you know, it was pointed out to him, and, I mean, he changed, and he he did work at that, and so hospitable, you know. Um, I can't talk to everybody in the congregation on a Sunday morning. I just can't. It's physically impossible. So I let you come to me, and I let the moments happen, and when you've got something to say to me, I'm going to sit down. We just need to listen. Now, if it's 11.02, I may act a little nervous. Okay, I may act a little nervous because we've got to get the deal going. But I want to hear and I want to listen. So hospitable. So be understanding with that. Notice able to teach, having the ability to communicate. Um, that's important. That's important. You know, we don't have to jump hoops up here, but we've got to keep people's attention. You know, we don't to talk with monotone and we know. We just, just, you just, you got to sit out. Look, you got to sit out there for 30, 30 minutes. 20 minutes you know 30 at the most but it's it's a isn't it agonizing and please don't say amen but isn't it agonizing to hear a pastor and his monotone and he's killing it and he's dying and you're like he's dying you're dying and you just want the death to pass you just want to get out to your car and turn the air on and get down the road because it's so tough and uh You know, some ser I just finished a great book by Martin Lloyd Jones, Preaching and Preachers. Every preacher ought to ought to get it. And he said, you know, some sermons, you just fight with them all week long, and then you get in the pulpit and they just come alive. They take life of their own and they just fly. And he said, some weeks you got it all together, you got your illustrations, you feel like you're gonna shuck the corn. And he says you get up there and the whole thing just dies in the introduction. And you're just dragging yourself through the whole message. And uh, I like reading it because he lived it and he can talk to guys who go through those experiences. But anyway, able to teach, able to at least keep the attention and you go away and you actually learn something. You actually go away and say, I never saw that in the passage and and I learned something new today. That's that's the goal. So, able to teach. Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Uh, Fascinating. Uh, that uh, Paul would mention that, uh, not to someone who give is given to abuses, whether it be the alcohol or whether it be pain medication, not an addictive nature where, because of the stresses and trials of life, you just kind of develop this other life and start hitting the snips, snops. Is that what they used to call it? Know, it's little snip, snops. And um, anyway, one of the relics that I appreciate. From family heirlooms is my grandfather's shot glass. It has a red top. It has J.B. Gaylor in it. Now, my grandfather was an alcoholic. I'm sure he used it a lot more than I use it. I have never used it, actually. But I keep it, and not a drunkard, not somebody who's going to preach to you and go home and, and drink, okay? I believe in total abstinence, and I believe that's important for the pastor. So, let's go on. Not a drunkard, not violent, Not somebody's going to choke you, even though he wants to, but gentle, gentle, not quarrelsome, not somebody who's looking for a fight, stirring something up, mad about something and resentful about something and trying to start something. Notice, not a lover of money not a lover of money. Now, money is a, a necessary evil within church. You have to take the offerings. You've got to pay the electric. You've got to do the projects. Uh, there's salaries involved. But those things better not mean anything to the pastor. If he's doing it as a job for money, he's in the wrong occupation. This is a calling. This is something we do because we're called to the Lord. So not somebody who is going to start skimming off the top. Not somebody who's going to take advantage of their position by starting to steal money. Not someone who thinks of his salary all the time. Okay? Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity. Keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he come down here and take care of the church? Okay? Huge qualification for anybody in ministry should be their home ought to reflect Christianity. Now, Karen and I get in a fuss. You know that. I, I tell about our fusses from time to time. But we make up. We. Uh, We had some biscuits. I'll tell you the biscuit story. You'll enjoy the biscuit story. We bought some frozen biscuits for Steve's class, okay? Well, I left them at home Sunday morning. I forgot to bring them. So I drove over to Publix in the morning. I bought some more frozen biscuits. Well, I brought them back. ended up making biscuit biscuits, you know, because I just am hard-headed. So I got the biscuits down here. So Wednesday night, we've got no bread. And so I thought, well, I'll take those biscuits and those biscuits, and I'll have forty biscuits for Wednesday night. Karen doesn't eat biscuits. We're not big. We try not to be big bread people. Well, Lorelai comes home on Wednesday night from church to stay overnight. Well, Karen thinks I'll scramble her an egg with a biscuit in the morning. So she goes out to the freezer and no biscuits. So she's, you know, when I got home, she's hot about the biscuits. It's one of those things you throw your hat in, it comes flying back out. And so we got into a bit of a fuss. Lorelai was upstairs on the couch, and after a while she said, I'm up here, I can hear what you say, <laughs> which didn't slow us down, you know. I made the mistake within the argument saying, well, the biscuits, you, you know, you're trying to watch your, oh, I have a problem with my weight. <laughs> we just, I made several errors within the argument. So the next morning, Lorelai's sitting on the couch with Karen downstairs, and, and, and Karen says, Lorelai, what do you want for breakfast? And she said, I want eggs and biscuits. And then she cut her eyes at me and smiled. Anyway, she's, <laughs> she's trying to start it all up again. So our homes are just like your homes. Things happen. We get in fusses. We get tired. We get overstressed. We'll bark at each other, but the bottom line is we're not throwing each other out of the house. We're not we're not divorcing we're not separating we're not throwing knives you, we're going all go and 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 that the children that we raise are godly they're respectful um now once they're 18 they're on their own but they ought to reflect the home they came out of especially on up to 18 years old okay had a staff member years ago here Uh, who had, um, it it was Steve, and Lucy was very small. Remember, Lucy was very small. And church members would walk by Lucy and say hi. And she was shy or whatever, but she would not respond to them. And I sat down with Steve. I said, Steve, you need to work with that because that's important that when church members say hi to Lucy that she responds. And uh, at the moment, he didn't like me confronting him with that, but he thanked me later on. He says, you know, that was kind of tough to hear, but you were right. And so I noticed Lucy responding when, when we said hi to her. So that's important, that a clergy, our kids aren't going to be perfect, but they ought to be respectful. And when a child is addressed by an adult, it is a respectful thing to address that adult back. I never, I never fault parents or I never fault the clergy around here if their kids misbehave. It's when the parents don't do anything about it when they misbehave. That's, that's, I'm watching for that because kids are going to, you know, they just are. They're, they're little self, self-absorbed little creatures. And so, anyway, you just got to stay on them. So, let's go on. Not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome. He must manage his own house. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Somebody who's just saved. Okay? And you have this with athletes and big superstars who get saved. And we think, oh, the Lord could really use them. And before you know it, they're in a pulpit. What is that? They've entered a brand new kingdom. They don't know anything about it. But we think, oh, they got a face, they got a face everybody knows. They got this dynamic spirit where they're able, they're very charismatic in the way they speak. Has nothing to do with qualifying there. He said, don't let a brand new Christian take over responsibilities in that way. Why? Because this is what's going to happen that they may become puffed up with conceit. They may fall into the condemnation of the devil. They may think they're something. They may think they've arrived. They may think they're important. When a man becomes in any kind of way a clergy or any kind of overseer, that is not an important position in terms of him being important. Never. It's a position of task and labor, to share Christ and to get out of His way. So it is not a a look at me, I'm important, I'm the boss kind of position. Now in the world it is. In the world there's power positions out there where you can boss people around. That's not clergy. Never should be that. There's no sense of I'm more important than anyone else within the church. The Spirit can't be there. And so a person needs to know the Lord a long time, to allow the flesh to find its place on the cross where there's no sense of me involved in this. You ought to be able to come up to any clergy at the end of a sermon and absolutely criticize them to death about the sorry mess just made of that message. And that clergy ought to be able to look at you and say, well, praise the Lord. I hope you got something out of it. And they should have no flesh at all. Now, that's a tall task, is it not? But... He should not worry about what you think of him. The most effective preachers are not sitting up here thinking, what are they thinking of me? What do they think about my hair? Do they like my pants I wore today? How do they like that illustration? He shouldn't care a bit about what they think of him at all. He should become transparent so that the word of God flows through. All he cares about is you're getting the message from the scripture. You see? So there's no ego involved. There's no what do you think of me involved. There's no self-importance involved. He must cast himself completely away from the process, allowing Christ to speak through him. Okay? Just the way it is. So verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not saying two things to two different people or two different occasions, not addicted to much wine. And by the way, I'm thankful for the deacons we have in this church. There are all these qualifications, or we would not have asked them to be deacons, and we would not. You have would, would, would have not voted them them in. Notice they must hold the mystery of the faith, so it's not just. A servant's position, it is a spiritual position, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must primarily be spiritual men who love Christ because when we gather together to serve together, that spirit must reflect itself in our meetings where we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in the meetings.